1: Hello! Welcome to the first Exeunt podcast. Each month we're going to discuss some of the latest shows around the table, this table, with a mixture of critics, theatre makers and audience members. We're going to interview loads of interesting people to find out about every aspect of how theatre is made. We'll have archive reviews, freeform responses, micro plays, macro plays. In short, we want to talk about theatre and we want you to listen. Around the table today are one of my favourite lovers, Catherine Wright, Uh, I mean, one of my favourite writers, Catherine Love. Blogger and controversialist, the Katie Hopkins of the theatre world, Megan Ford. Fuck off.
2: Alright. Sorry. Carry on.
1: Writer and dramaturg, the (laughs) Kermo to my Mayo, the Adam to my Joe, the Adnan Syed to my Sarah Koenig, Anna Gret Merton. Hello. And me, Tim Banno The four of us will be talking about Little Light by Alice Birch. A Stab in the Dark by Joel Horwood and Secret Theatre and The Eradication of Schizophrenia in Western Lapland by Ridiculousness. We'll be talking to Brian Logan, Artistic Director of Camden People's Theatre, about this year's Sprint Festival and we'll have a little love letter to that unique building, Battersea Arts Centre. So for starters, let's delve right into Little Light. Alice Birch which was on at the Orange Tree Theatre in Richmond. Catherine can you explain briefly what the play was about?
3: That's quite difficult without giving away any spoilers. I suppose it's a domestic setup. There are two sisters and their two partners in an isolated house by the sea and there is something, some unspoken ritual that's going on, which remains obscured for
2: much of the play.
1: So there there was this central revelation that's really withheld. Mm-hmm. Meg, how well do you think that was executed?
2: I don't think it mattered. Okay. I think that the strength of that whole play is actually the build-up. And the build-up, obviously, is like mm. 90% of the piece. Don't find out till the very end. And there was a line that stuck with me from it, actually, that I think was kind of in the final moments of something about pressing on a bruise about mm. kind of re- revisiting an awful pain even though i certainly felt like why would you ever put yourself through that why would you ever go back somewhere mm. and relive this awful awful tragedy but actually there was something about the build up and the pacing and also the kind of the weirdness the unknown mm. factor of the way it was revealed to us that was more important than what actually happened. Mm. That was almost like wrapping things up nicely, which gave me something, and I'm kind of glad I knew what was going on, but at the same time wasn't necessary really either.
1: I like the pressing on a bruise line, Mm. because it did strike me that while they do this ritual reminiscing every year, you know, reminiscing something that should be pleasurable, it's something that should be kind of joyful, Mm. and you remember happy moments, and it's weird that these characters have decided to share this Mm. horrible moment.
3: But I think pressing on a bruise is really powerful as well because it's this idea of marking something and remarking it so that it's not forgotten. Um, and I, I actually yeah. kind of forgotten that line and yeah. now you remind me it's such a It feels perfect like it sums everything line up, doesn't it? Mm-hmm.
2: To
1: think about it? What did you think of the characters, Annegret?
0: You know, you had the family and their healing process or non-healing process. And you could tell from right from the start that it was really intricate how, how they were struggling to overcome one. And then you had this this Simon character who's the, the boyfriend of the sister and I just thought he was out of a completely different play breaking in there.
1: I found that as well, but I thought that almost turned it into a kind of comedy of manners mm. of the you know, the boyfriend being brought home to meet the family. Except yeah. it's a particularly odd family. He, yeah, he was, yeah. Like, he
2: was like the voice of the audience on stage, wasn't yeah. he? Because yeah. he didn't have a fucking clue what
1: was going on either. And it's just a shame that he wasn't very likeable, because my sympathy was drawn to him
0: quite I, I just really wanted to care about the other characters more, and I just couldn't... I was so surprised to hear about how everyone else seemed to be so emotionally <laughs> affected by it, and I just couldn't bring myself to care about the reveal. The whole build-up, I just thought, these characters don't relate to me, and it was I don't think it was because it was obfuscated.
1: Do you think that's because mm-hmm. they weren't well written?
0: I
2: couldn't put my finger on what what it was that prevented that, that connection happening. I think it's really interesting about the amount of information that we were given throughout most of the play mm. because it's such a fine line and I think that every audience member who watches it is going to sit in a slightly different place on the spectrum of what they enjoy and what they're happy with and what they want to see. And I think that I was you know, just about within that, that bit on the spectrum that meant mm. that I was... Intrigued by the bits that I didn't understand and sympathetic to the bits that felt like a normal, normal dysfunctional family. But if there was something about the characters or something about the situation or something about the way in which the information was drip fed to us that just didn't quite sit right with somebody, it would break everything. It would mean the whole play, I think, didn't work for you. I
0: also, think the way we started into the way the the lines were delivered. So there was and right from the beginning, the dialogue was like slap, 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 almost not naturalistic. And I just didn't know how to get in. And that was that was not a, how it was written, but that was a really conscious decision, I think, from from the direction point of view.
1: I, I found that as well. That a lot of that dialogue, especially in the beginning, very jarring. To me, it seemed like a really conscious choice because. There were so many just half-lines, thoughts that were left unfinished, and it became clear within a few minutes that she's withholding something from us, and she's trying to put it in this sort of stylish way. But I did find it really frustrating that there were no finished sentences mm. in my first half <laughs> of the play, basically. Yeah.
3: I love the boldness of it, though. And I say maybe boldness is the wrong word, because you you look at it and you think, oh, it's, it's a domestic play. It's it, It's following a very established pattern of of withholding information with a final reveal but I thought there was something really interestingly subversive about taking that format which has been used so many times in so many plays and there was just something kind of uncanny about it Mm. Um, and it sort of disrupted that genre of play if you can call it a genre in a way that I think immediately kind of got me on its side I thought there was something really interesting formally about it where it sort of um in a way that maybe wasn't immediately obvious you wouldn't think about it immediately as a formally innovative play but I think there was something kind of subtly subversive about I it I found a
2: change of tense in the end like the penny dropped for me and I was just like oh shit I understand what's happened now I think that a lot of that came from the change of tense in the way that the pregnant sister rather than kind of reminiscing or reliving this this horrible event she was suddenly back there and it was being spoken as if it was happening now mm. and that was a magical moment for me it suddenly felt like I was like oh now I get what they're doing now I understand now I can piece this together and see how horrific it really was
0: Obviously, this is one of the. Uh, this is an earlier play of, of Alice. Um,
2: yeah, it's a first full length, I think. Yeah. So it's
3: very different to the, the. I've seen two other plays of hers, mm-hmm. Little on the Inside and Revolt, She Said Revolt Again, and both were very different to one another and to this. I feel as though every piece of hers that I've seen has had some kind of twist on it in some way. There's something, like I said, this is kind of quite. Subtly subversive, whereas Revolt really rips up the the sort of dramaturgical rulebook uh, in a much more ballsy way. But there is, I feel like you can you can begin to see that interest in playing with form in. In Little Light,
2: It feels like she's at, because Alice Birch is at the start of her career, there is this massive, there's the joyfulness in her trying all the different things at the moment. The only other thing that I've seen other than Little Light was a show that was done by Islington Community Theatre, so like a, a young amateur cast uh, about the housing crisis and it was, that was a lot of kind of individual scenes in this weird distorted future. But it was—it was, felt like playful in its experimentation, and from what I've heard about Revolt, it feels like it's her just throwing balls in the air and seeing what works. It's great.
4: Balls in the air.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> My name's Brian Logan, I'm the Artistic Director of County People's Theatre, I have been for a, a little over three years. Uh, artistic Director at CBT, meets artists, sees shows, talks to artists, oversees Artist development, which is a big aspect of what we do here, uh, by which I mean working with artists to forward both their careers and individual projects they're working on. Um, yeah, obviously, program the shows, curate festivals, uh, really anything to do with this kind of vision or artistic side of CPT, although I must emphasize that we're pretty democratic, and Amber and my other colleague Anna get involved in all these conversations too. It's a bit of a movable piece, to be honest. I mean, it's changed over the years. When I inherited this job, the job title was actually Director. And I shared this job with my partner, Jenny Payton. And I think historically, my understanding is having spoken to Chris Good, that back when he ran CPT, the job was called Artistic Director. But maybe there was a perception among the, uh, the board at the time that he was concentrating too much on the artistic side of that phrase, and insufficiently on the director side of that phrase. So I think that was when the job became Director. He wanted to emphasize that there were some responsibilities over and above the artistic ones. The Sprint Festival uh, is called Festival of New Theatre for the adventurous. It's old Sprint, this is the 17th Sprint. It's a sort of flagship event in the CBT calendar. So even though we now actually program quite a lot of festivals, usually the other ones will be themed. They'll often be triggered by some kind of socio-political, cultural ideas. The Sprint uh, has never had a theme. It's just a great cavalcade, a wide-ranging performance of theatre work. As long as we feel it's got something exciting that it wants to propose about the world, you know, that's what we're interested in. I can reel off names of now-distinguished theatre artists and companies who have been at CPT over the years. Companies like Ridiculousness, Robert Paciti, Fevered Sleep, Analog or Blind Summit. We often use Cartoon de Salvo, which is my company. I'm obviously far too humble to mention that name. Nigel Barrett from Shunt did a lot of his early work here too. There's a whole bunch of great artists who've passed through CPT over the years. Have total recall of that. I'd have to take you into our dusty archive downstairs. So, when I arrived at CBT, the board made it known that if we wanted, we could change the name, which I thought was interesting. And I think there was a sort of acknowledgement now that maybe the name has, in some ways, been problematic. At the time, we all thought, yeah, the problematic word is probably people's, because it gives the impression of us as some sort of Wolfie Smith Trotskyist affiliated to the Trades Union Movement the theatre. All of which are very positive connotations as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> positive is an acknowledgement that maybe that was offputting to people or giving out the wrong signal. Part of that was that peoples clearly suggests popular, whereas we were associated with experimental work, and popular and experimental are seen as opposite ends of the spectrum. And we quickly felt that actually, particularly at this historical moment, it's quite an important thing to have peoples in your name. And ever since we've been trying to honour that word, or explore what that word might mean, you know, and target this idea that popular and innovative have to be seen as polar opposites. So that's the word "peoples," which, you know, I do think is significant. I actually, retrospectively, thought that Camden was the challenging word in our name because people think we're in Camden town. Nobody knows that Camden stretches from the Donmar Warehouse up to Hampstead Theatre. Although, I'm a, you know, I'm a great enthusiast for the word theatre, which itself has been seen as unfashionable in some circles. But I do like a bit of theatre. Well, it means that I should be spending most of my working life on a chaise long with a large cigar <laughs> sticking out of my mouth. All it actually does is formalise the amounts of money we tended to be getting from the Arts Council anyway, albeit that we have to repeatedly go back cap and hand for different project applications, which you won't have to do it. But it's not like a step change in terms of the amount of money that's coming out, at least not immediately. But to be honest, I'm not 100% sure what, what the immediate effects will be. I mean, it's great. I, I, th- I think it's... Good news. Although we have spoken to smaller organisations of our size who have found in the past that NPO has been as much of a challenge as an opportunity, but we're optimistic that it will be more of an opportunity. I think it's you know it's exciting to have the endorsement of, our, of what we've been doing on one level. I'm expecting that it will make it easier to fundraise elsewhere. There have been periods where it feels like CPT could close at any minute. I don't think we're going to close now. In the next three years, hopefully, there's a little bit more in there for programming and we've never had a commissioning pot in the past. We're trying to create a small commissioning pot now. So our intention is that it should, you know, and our pitch to the Arts Council was that that money should go towards our artistic program and our artists. And we're happy to be held to that. It's not going on infrastructure. It's not, sadly for me, going on salaries. So, so yeah, hopefully it will be reflected in a more confident programming, treating artists even better than we've done in the past. My desktop I have a list of all the shows in time that I want to see and I enjoy the sensation of having to delete them as I realize they've closed. I mean there's loads I would like to see. I want to see the view from the bridge which I still haven't seen about a year behind everyone else. I want to see the Scottish wrestling show that Stuart Pringle's got on at the Old Red Lion. I know I'm not going to see. Yeah I mean I spot my you know there's a quite good fit in me in CBT because my natural taste is this kind of you know I like to sit down and have my mind blown. I also like a really good well-made play. Sometimes you go and see a well-made play and think, oh, yeah, I realise why this is the most popular form of theatre. It really is substantial and well-made and it's been crafted. So there's loads of lessons that you can learn from a good well-made play. But equally, there's loads of lessons that type of theatre can learn from ours. I used to go up every year to the Edinburgh Fringe as part of the Guardian's team. At the point that comedy was big enough that they felt they needed a dedicated comedy guy, I was one of the first to do that. There's loads of great comedy out, you know, great stand-up. Show demands to be written about and interrogated and given weight in the same way that a great piece of work in any other art form does. But you know, there's a lot of stand up comedy that is there as a light piece of entertainment that doesn't necessarily merit the same consideration. And there was no such thing as a comedy critic in the late 90s. And I shouldn't say it wasn't a job that existed, because I'm sure there was one or two writers making a living out of writing for comedy, but there was no regular comedy reviewing for national newspapers. And there's now like, you, you could review stand up every night of the week if you wanted to. You know.
1: Okay, so we move swiftly on to A Stab in the Dark, which was on at the Lyric Hammersmith by Joel Howard and the Secret Theatre Company. Meg, could you explain briefly what Secret Theatre is?
2: Okay, Secret Theatre is a uh, two-year ensemble project that was put together by the Lyric Hammersmith in response to the fact that they're doing up their building, and the facilities that they've had available in the last couple of years have been kind of reduced. It's been a little bit like walking around a building site at times, but they've always had a workable space, so they wanted to find a way to make use of that. And also in response to the runaway success of uh, Three Kingdoms in 2012, which was a show that originally looked like it was going to flop for them when a lot of the mainstream critics weren't into it. But I certainly think, and I know that Catherine will agree with me, that it was one of the most exciting, revolutionary things that I've ever had put in front of my eyes. The last couple of years has seen Secret Theatre develop this ensemble of you know, cast members, designers, writers, directors come together and work in a kind of more of a community-spirited way on seven different shows.
1: What did you, Catherine, think of it as a farce?
2: Well, I can't say
3: I'm a big farce <laughs> expert, to be totally honest. What was interesting about that use of form is actually... It kind of comes in the context of the whole Secret Theatre project and immediately before seeing the show I just spent an hour on a panel talking about the whole project and thinking about, I think the, the question put to us was was it worth it but it was really just a way of considering the aims and achievements of the entire project We were talking about the, how the, the aesthetic had changed from initially aspiring to what we might loosely call a kind of continental European aesthetic aesthetic in the style of something like Three Kingdoms, because that was such a, you know, a massive reference point at the start of the project. And it was, uh, it was mentioned during that panel discussion that the project has sort of almost come full circle, and that, that with Show 5, a series of increasingly impossible acts, there was this very British influence of that kind of devised work in the style of companies like Forced Entertainment. And so we'd just been talking about this movement from a kind of European aesthetic to more of a British aesthetic. And then it was lovely that <laughs> immediately afterwards we went to this very, very British farce, but still with an element of that ensemble ethos that had been inspired by sort of certain continental ways of working. And also there were still kind of lingering elements of that Three Kingdoms aesthetic particularly towards the end of the show.
1: Having not been engaged in secret theatre, particularly as a, a movement, the problem I had with it was I, I didn't find it funny. And I know that, Meg, I think you you did genuinely find it funny. I you?
2: couldn't Gosh. breathe at moments. <laughs> yeah. I was literally, like, tears streaming down my face. We went,
0: we went together and I was just... I, I sat there chuckling and I was looking... Yeah. So like why is he not
2: you <laughs> he heartless bastard. bastard
3: you said it was
1: <laughs> willful as well but it wasn't willful I just find it funny
3: do you not find the physical humour particularly I find funny? physical
1: humour absolutely hilarious and yeah you
3: didn't you didn't find the slamming of the door into there's one character who gets um a door slammed repeatedly into
2: his face in quite an entertaining manner. You
1: know yeah, you I were, think that was probably the bit where it What about the bit where, the bit where, where Hamed, Hamed
2: kept getting a boner? That's the most beautiful, simple moment of pure, gleeful humour I think I've ever seen on a stage. Do you know what?
1: All the kind of tortuous... Basically, all those ways of talking about ejaculation is kind of weak wordplay. Oh, come just on. Bad! Like, bad... Well, neologisms... Basically. Oh, show
0: your so
2: neologisms up your arse!
0: <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was so playful when I get, went in because I knew the topic it was going to be about. Oh, it's going to be really <laughs> radical secret theatre doing <laughs> Afghanistan war, and then it took this this. Structure this really a uh, traditional format, and I thought in the beginning it's not doing anything with it. It's just mm. uh, and then, as you say, to the end it's just ah, I'm redeeming the, myself. The last
1: yeah. few minutes I think completely yeah. saved it for me. Mm. I thought those last few minutes made it yeah. amazing. Yeah.
2: yeah, it they were a different play. It was it's yeah. funny like we're talking about this straight after having talked about Little Light, mm. both of which have this majority of one type of thing and then mm. at the very end they become another type of thing yeah. I think that's really interesting yeah. um, but I also think that in, again in, in the defence of show 7 I, I don't understand farce I don't seek out farce mm. my knowledge of farce up to this point has been looking down my nose slightly at Noel Coward and thinking I'm better than that and I am glad to have the opportunity to be reminded that farce isn't this fucking drawing room comedy bullshit that i've always thought it was and it can be about young people in a situation that is far removed from mm. a drawing room and it can use the humor that i use and give it back to me it was something that i really enjoyed it had i had was... really important topics you know like yeah if you if you think about it, it was all,
0: all about Britain how we think oh we have the answer and we just go yeah. march in there and give them and then there are people who refuse our help and and the madness really of that war situation yes. and being
2: away from your families and being yeah. thrown together with these people that you've supposedly had training with and mm. actually I mean let's not overthink the fact that it's just a, a comedy but actually it's a comedy about a war zone mm. and there's something inherently hilarious about that but also there is a benefit in finding the funny side of that stuff mm. sometimes and I think it does it
3: yeah. brilliantly. As a, as a marriage of form and content it's kind of perfect because it's just immediately pointing out the farcical nature of so much of that conflict and so it, in that sense it feels kind of perfect and also the fact that it takes, not only takes that farce as a form but it really felt as it pushed it to its absolute extreme and, and takes it to this really kind of anarchic, chaotic climax
1: Did you think those final minutes were a suitable climax for the project as a whole?
3: I feel like that's a very difficult question and actually I know that the project is going to have an ongoing life so it didn't feel, in some ways it felt like a conclusion and in other ways it didn't and there is something about those final moments which feels sort of apt and I think you, mm, know, you may put this perfectly in her blog post about it so maybe you'd be a better person to
2: oh, talk pressure. about it. <laughs> uh, no I I just the, the idea of kind of closing that circle off and obviously yeah the Secret Theatre project will have a, another life in in whatever form but actually we can still look at these seven shows in these 18 months two years as one thing I found the final 10 minutes of it very moving because I've had I have followed the whole project Mm. throughout it like as soon as I heard about it I wanted it to succeed I wanted every theatre in London and every theatre in this country to do something similar and to to think outside the box in that way and to to bring in influences from all of these places that I can't visit because I can't afford to but I want to see all that stuff all the time and it was just a beautiful beautiful ending to see that that set deconstructed in the way that you'd kind of seen at the beginning of the project it took until show five for me to go fucking yes they have nailed this and Mm -hmm. this will stand on its own feet now long may that continue
1: thank you
5: I grew up in London, in South East London, and South West London always felt like a really long way away. So going to Battersea or Clapham or somewhere like that always felt like a a bit of a trek. But when BAC was at the end of it, you know, when I was under my own steam and started saving up money from my Saturday job for theatre tickets and things like that, BAC was always worth worth the trek.
6: I was living in Oxford at the time and and travelled with two much older young men and and it felt very much like they were showing me this exciting place.
7: Mask of the Red Death was the first proper show I ever saw in London, I think. It was the first time I'd ever come to London to see a proper play and it was because everyone was talking about it. But... Obviously, it completely overtook the building. So um, my sort of first memories of Patsy Art Centre as this huge, rambling Gothic installation that I sort of spent, you know, three hours running through and being incredibly excited, never having seen anything like it on this scale or anything.
6: The first thing that I saw at the PAC was Nick Green forming Trilogy, a really memorable one for me because one of the pieces of Tr- of Trilogy, the second piece, sent me off on a five year adventure of research and i've just written finished writing a play in response to that thing
5: there was a theatre piece where two guys had set up with typewriters and fantastical costumes and they set themselves up as sort of fortune teller storyteller type people and in the adjacent room were a number of random objects and you picked one of these objects and took it into to the fortune teller storytellers and they would write you a story based on the sort of totem you'd chosen.
6: And at the end of it, uh, they got a whole load of people from the audience to join them up on stage naked and sing Jerusalem with them. And those of us that decided not to get involved in that particular bit uh, went down and fully clothed sang Jerusalem with them. It was quite wonderful.
5: And I had a toy monkey, uh, which I've still got, and it sits in my study over my desk.
7: Ever since, and, and the many, many times I've been since, I sort of feel like I'm rediscovering the building.
5: BAC feels like a place where you can just wander in.
7: The mosaic on the front floor with all of the bees on it.
6: At the top of the stairs, the main, that incredible main central staircase, there are these gorgeous old red cloth booths. At the top of the staircase, there's four or five of them, and they're like American diner booths, but they're, there's also simultaneously something about them that makes them look as if they're for people who carry opera glasses around with them.
7: It's, it's just one of all of, of these hundreds and hundreds of features of the place um, which make it what it is and which make it feel so completely different from anywhere I've been before. I love the fact that walking in there still feels a little bit like walking into a strange stately home or like walking into the house from Rocky Horror or something like that And, and, and that is something which just sets it apart from anywhere else I've been in London.
5: They've sort of taken the building to heart and made the whole thing into this space of imagination and exploration and play and magic.
6: I'm pretty sure that the room that we were forming in has either changed name or dimensions since we were actually there in, in, in 2010. But I remember um, this was it was the Master of Margarita and I was playing Corovio. I remember the blocking involved me uh, clambering uh, sort of upper flight of stairs and then in the, in the attic, through the attic, above the audience's heads on this gangway that was about a foot across in a frilly coat and wig. And because of the blocking, I had to do this four or five times during the show.
5: In every space, in every nook and cranny and niche, you never know what you're going to encounter.
6: And it did feel like the most ridiculous thing and what on earth was this building? It's
5: not just about the bricks and mortar of the building. It really does do that, you know, not for you, not for me, but for us thing. There aren't really spaces in the adult world that do that unless you go to church or whatever.
6: Because it was a town hall, it, it can't be one person.
7: come to kind of symbolize a sort of sort of thrill and surprise at the possibilities of theatre which you know eight years ago i didn't realize existed and for somewhere to to feel like that to feel risky and dangerous and exciting while also obviously being such a great home for artists and people feel so comfortable there whether they're just there to have a coffee or whether they're there to make work or see work like that's quite an incredible combination to be that out there but that homely i guess
5: there's nowhere else I can think of that inspires that same kind of fierce loyalty and love.
1: And on to the third show, The Eradication of Schizophrenia in Western Lapland by Ridiculousness. We just had a few incarnations, so Catherine and I saw it in Edinburgh last summer, Meg saw it just afterwards when it had a run at Batsy Arts Centre, and Annegret's just seen it on its latest run at the Albany Annegret, can you tell me a bit about the show?
0: What I find really fascinating um, of, about all the shows we've, we've talked about today is that I find, in a, in a way, they're all uh, about trauma. Uh, eradication is, is in a way, it's a, a study of a, a shattered family and their challenge to create meaning around some some traumatic event, I would say, that, that has happened. And we're never quite sure what
1: it was that's happened. Are we talking so about
2: little right now? What? Are you talking about eradication of six Feet? Yeah. Oh, actually, is that the same... It's a shattered family. You've is got it? the brother.
3: I
1: didn't even know uh, oh
2: You
3: do see scenes well there there's Some of them suggestions scary, of well, maybe that's the just family. my interpretation. You've oh got a brother
0: God, you've got two is... brothers and you've got the mother
1: and That the... is a bit uncanny though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. As an audience before you um when you let in, you're being split into two into two groups and you see the events happening and playing out um, from different sides of the stage. obviously that that must be different in every in every theater space but in, at the mm-hmm. Albany it was really clearly divided and, and you have this uh, window front where you can sometimes peer through you can hear bits of, of dialogue and sometimes they they match sometimes they contradict each other
1: And you get sort of half a show and then I didn't know actually when I was seeing it that we'd get the other half of the show mm. but
3: did we though? Like I to, I think it's I think it's different. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think
1: there's it's, a
3: bit with
2: a frog that is totally not in the first. Because I saw a bit. I was watching for the the big moments because sometimes you have like yeah. voices yeah, yeah. that could rise above what you're actually yeah. watching. And there was a bit at the very end with a woman pretending to be a frog, and I was like, that definitely didn't happen mm. before the <laughs> interval. I would have been so on that if I, <laughs> if anyone had been pretending to be a frog before yeah. the interval and then were not.
1: Yeah. so we may have all had different shows
4: but
2: this is this conversation that we're having now about it is so indicative of the strength of the whole show yeah mm-hmm. that dissonance and that confusion mm-hmm. and that misunderstanding about what's actually happening and what we've just seen and what
1: I've only seen two ridiculousness shows looking over my notes both times I've written down towards the beginning I have no idea what's going on <laughs> do you like that experience?
0: I loved it I love not knowing what's going on but actually if, if we're being honest it, they're really clear about what they're trying to achieve. I love that they, in a way they're doing this meta theatre thing but you know they're not being snooty and ooh, also clever it's it's really about something and oh, I love it I, if they do another show I'll go in a heartbeat I want a free book and everything mm-hmm. Yeah, I love them.
1: It does make its message very clear certainly by the end of the of the eradication, you really get a clear sense of what's going on, but it seems like they have this deliberately rough and ready aesthetic. Really playful, really fun. But there were some pretty moving moments in the show Yeah, I wouldn't...
2: It's not a show that I would describe as playful or fun. I mean, I got a lot out of it, and I completely appreciate what they're trying to achieve with it, but even the bits where people around me were chuckling, I was like, taking this as part of the bigger picture here, this is actually fucking terrifying it's it's that thing where there are some instances in a theatre auditorium where you don't know what's going on and that's totally cool you can just let it wash over you and get something or enjoy that feeling of confusion and actually I felt in that show I was kind of unnerved Mm. by the way that I didn't understand and that was almost unpleasant but Mm. actually If it's a show about mental illness, man, how pleasant is it going to be? I was much more affected by what
0: they did and by not knowing than than by anything that I saw in Little Light.
1: I I think I probably was too. But I think that that unnerving feeling Mm. of just bamboozlement, not knowing what's going on. For me, the way that I expressed that was through laughing. Because laughing shows, you know, you've got something that's going on on stage. I've understood that bit. So I love to express it. And, and, you know, people Mm. in the audience do. But I do agree, yeah. Yeah. It's it's relentlessly dark. Particularly when I I was wondering, these actors, they're kind of non-naturalistic. They've got all this kind of stilted way of performing with these long pauses. And then Mm. I realised, well, that's because they've got three other conversations Mm. happening in their head at the same time. Of course they can't focus Mm. on what they're saying.
0: That's what, throughout, I was wondering who's actually the subject of, of the therapy session once you were on the other side you think oh oh no it's not them it's the other people mm-hmm. and i love that that was never really resolved that mm-hmm. we were always unsure who's actually having having therapy here
3: yeah i
1: like that idea that you didn't know which three were the delusions and which three mm-hmm. were the real person it could have yeah. been any of them, and all of them.
3: From yeah, from what I remember about it, there was something really interesting in that you were continually, despite every attempt at grasping onto meaning, being frustrated, you still couldn't help but try to sort of find some way through it. Whatever it was that achieved that was
0: quite skillful, I think. In Finland, there is this um, form of treating schizophrenia mm-hmm. um, as this is called open dialogue, where actually. You don't take the person with mental health issues away and treat them, but it's this, this approach where you treat them in the community and it's a shared, shared storytelling, shared process of creating meaning. And in a way, it was mm-hmm. great that they managed to somehow replicate
2: that and we were...
0: Yeah, and traveling. what is theatre
2: if it's not a shared process of creating meaning? It's quite beautiful, really. We're
0: mm. creating the meaning together now, so... Yeah, yeah this that. is our
2: open dialogue community <laughs> session to get over our great trauma. <laughs> the
0: trauma of theatre.
1: I've seen little lines. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, it's stab in the dark, but... Good, I think silence
0: yeah, a... it was a really nice ending <laughs> <laughs>
1: we'll have to see this bit in the middle yeah. thanks for listening and thanks to Catherine Love Megan Vaughan Brian Logan Stuart Pringle Dave Ralph and Eleanor Turney we'll be back next month in the meantime head to exeuntmagazine.com for by far the best reviews and features on the internet, and follow Exeunt on Twitter, at Theatre Magazine. Bye.
7: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince
2: has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus...